You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have yet another awesome guest on the show. I don't know. They're just either there's a lot of awesome people out there or the, the show is just a magnet for them. I'm not sure which. But today we have Dr. Yao Keat, who is a cardiovascular researcher. Welcome to the show, Dr. Yao Keat. Thanks, Amelia. And I must say maybe it's a little bit of both. <laughs> I, it, maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You believe that there's awesome people out there and then more and more awesome people come. <laughs> So it's, it seems to work for me, but well, yes, no, I appreciate also that you accepted the compliment that you're awesome. However, we're going to start with, I don't know if it's easy or not anymore. What is your job? So my job is in the simplest of terms, I guess, a preclinical research scientist. Preclinical being that I don't work with humans and I work with animal models. And I specialize in cardiovascular lipidomic research with a focus of trying to understand the importance of lipids in cardiac health and also disease. And for the people of the back, what is a lipid? A lipid. So fat is a type of lipid, but not all lipids are fat. And there are literally millions of types of lipids. I think the easiest way is to imagine most people would know what HDL and LDLs are when you, you know, go for your health checks and they say, oh, you, HDLs are best and make sure you got heaps of them. Well, lipids and the profiling of lipids in what I do is literally going a, a step further and, and also almost assessing what makes up these LDL and LDLs and, and also things. So lipids also constitute your cell membranes. They, they, they basically build the structure that is the barrier between the internals of your cell to the outside. So lipids have a huge amount of roles outside of just being fat. I definitely thought lipids were just fats. <laughs> so I'm just sitting here feeling a little bit wrong right now. <laughs> Well, you know, fat are a type of lipid, so not entirely wrong. It's like the sharks and the fishes, like all sharks are fish, but not all fish are sharks. Okay, so lipids are all through our bodies. Yes. Do, do they do stuff? They do, yeah. So, so lipids are cool because they just do so much stuff, right? So if you think about your everyday being, you know, your when you go for a walk, when you exercise, lipids are in play because that's what helps generate energy, right? How do you generate this energy? It comes from your lipid stores, which are fat. And then that gets broken down into fatty acids and then it gets used to generate ATP, which is energy. But if you were to, un if your cells undergo mitosis, for example, so if it divides, what constitutes for like i said before your cellular membranes which is the the walls of your cell basically those are lipids so they constitute mostly phospholipids which are again different from your fat which is triacylglycerides and they serve very different functions your fatty acids that can be used to be to, to generate energy 
that can you that can do it that can actually serve as little signaling molecules to to activate you know certain sort of signaling cascades that leads to you know downstream sort of other things that occur so 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 lipids are everywhere and they serve so many different functions that i think people might not you know appreciate I definitely don't think I appreciated lipids enough. This might be a silly question, but can you run out of lipids? Like, do we need to keep through our diet, like keep topping them up? And would it be possible to run out? Yes. And so yes and no. There are some lipids that are purely dietary related. And so perhaps if maybe it's not included in your diet, then you could quote unquote run out of it. But for most part, like most lipids can be synthesized within your body. And that's the cool part about lipids as well, because, you know, like almost, maybe not all, but almost all lipids are interlinked where one can lead to the synthesis of the other. And then maybe somewhere down the line, it it gets broken into its little components, but those little components get used to synthesize another type of lipid, for example. And so when you do lipidomic profiling, for, for example, which is what I, I, you know, attempt to do in my work, it, it, it really is building almost like, you're almost painting a picture of what's going on in your body because you, you, you have, you get your results in this spreadsheet, right? But when you look at the spreadsheet over time, when you learn to understand that you go, right, so this is, this change is happening and you can see a thread where lipid a for example is decreased and then lipid b is decreased and c is decreased and you're like yeah i know that's interesting because a leads to the synthesis of b which leads to the synthesis of c and so you go all right something's happening and then you go yep okay so this must be something that i need to follow on because something's happening here within this pathway right And, and that's what's cool about lipids you know everything's interconnected very cool, but it also sounds like that would make it more difficult to study. Yes and no. I think maybe maybe it's perfect for me. Like I was just thinking as I was describing it, it's almost like the movie Inception, right? Oh, I was and thinking it sounded like you're a detective, but I can also see the Inception bit. Also yes. that, yeah. But Inception is one of my all-time favorite movies because I sat down and watched it like four or five times trying to understand which dream was in which dream and whose dream it was and who was in whose dream and who was the architect, etc., etc., etc. And I feel like sometimes lipidomic profiling and trying to understand lipids is the same thing. You're just trying to piece together all these things into like a giant puzzle and then you go, oh my God, that's what it means. It's super cool. How do you visualize this? Like, obviously you can visualize it in your head, but if you're going to communicate it to other people, do you have like (laughs) diagrams that make you look like a slightly crazy person being like, this happens and this happens? Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you think that I can visualize it in my head because I can't. <laughs> I, I, utilize visual, I use visualizing tools as well to try to better understand them. So that's where bioinformatics come into play. So for me and for many people who do lipidomic research or metabolomic research, you know, there are a few go-to sort of tools that we can use to try to visualize these changes, whether or not it's using heat maps, volcano plots, or I, I, I like to use forest plots 
to really quickly visualize like large scale data sets and, 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 and organize your data in a way for you to really go, okay, what's happening here? And so what I've just spouted out, they, they all these different, slightly different visualizing tools have sort of pros and cons as to what they will show and what you can take away from it. And so it, it's basically, the way I like to look at it is also it's how you massage your data set. So it's like, all right, how do I want to visualize this? Because this visualization tool will maybe help me think about X, Y, Z. So I'll try to look at the data in one way and then go, hmm, okay, cool. Like I'm seeing these things changing. And maybe the way I visualize the data set this way is highlighting X, Y, Z to me. That gives me information that I didn't know before. And that leads me down one path. And I go, all right, what's my next step? What do I want to focus on? Do I just want to focus on a specific group of lipids out of this 800 lipids that I'm thinking about? Or do I want to visualize it in another way to try to like get another perspective on it? It's kind of like the four blind people touching the elephant kind of deal. <laughs> oh, that's a fantastic description. 800 lipids. That's a lot. 800 and, and counting, I believe. But, but you know, that's... Uh, I have to shout out Kevin, Kevin Hoon and the other researchers of the lab that I'm, I'm actually joining for, for creating like, all these methods to be able to detect these lipids. Definitely not my area of expertise at the moment. Okay. But maybe in the future. Yes, th- at least that's why I'm hoping I could at least learn and try to understand a little bit better. So you mentioned, obviously, this is all related to cardiovascular systems. How, how do the lipids in the cardiovascular interact? Hmm. Yeah, so, so this is so cool, right? So when I, first, when I first got into this in my PhD, I thought, all right, the only way lipids could sort of interact and be understood in the context of your cardiovascular system must be in a setting of lipid overload, which is too much lipids. So when does that occur? In a setting of maybe obesity or, or in diabetes or something like that. And when I first started typing out my first proposal for, for Julie, who, who was, who's my supervisor, she was like, no, that's not it. And I was very confused. But then I came to appreciate that, that all this can be studied without the context of too much lipid. Because if we think about it again, your heart, consists of heaps of lipids because your heart is made out of cells, your cells have their membranes, and your membranes are made out of lipids. Your heart runs on energy because it needs to be pumping all the time. What provides the energy? Lipids. Your heart can grow in response to exercise, but also in response to a bad, any sort of bad stress, like high blood pressure. And when it grows, your heart cells don't really divide, but they increase in size. And what happens when it increases in size, the cellular membranes change. So what happens when that changes? Your lipid composition changes again. And at the time when I started my PhD, it was very underappreciated of that fact, I think, particularly like lipid remodeling and lipid composition changes. And so 
Julie, all credit to her together with Peter, led me down that route of trying to understand, all right, you know, like when your heart sort of changes in con- in the context of, of exercise and, and, you know, in response to cardiac disease, for example, how does those lipid composition change, right? And, and if it does change, is there a way to understand it as to where we can try to develop therapeutics to address those changes? So are you able to take lipid samples from, say, like a exercise heart and a super stressed heart and tell which one's which based on the lipids? Yes. Like so it's that, reverse engineering. I guess, was a, a component of my PhD and we managed to publish that after I finished my PhD. We found and we showed that lipid composition or the lip, let's just say the lipid profiles of an exercise and a heart that had undergone an increase in size in response to a a pathological stress are very different. Would they look similar? Like if you were to actually physically take the hearts and... Hmm. I think by eye they would because they, you have an increase in size, right? So we're talking about like morphology now or physiology and, and the exercise heart would say be maybe about 30% will have a 30% increase in size if, if you've undergone like chronic exercise and your heart, if in the initial phases of its response to pathological stress will look almost the same by eye, it will increase in size at, at one point because with the stress, your heart kind of knows it's going through stress, just like how it knows it's going through stress through exercise. So it kind of goes, ah, you know, like I need to increase in size because that's how I'm going to deal with the stress, right? The difference is with exercise, obviously it's not 24-7. You know, you're never going to be exercising 24-7. It's short bouts of stress. And so your heart kind of goes at each point, oh, okay, like there's exercise occurring. I need to increase in size to try to deal with the stress. And then you get to rest. Whereas in a pathological setting, because it's chronic, you know, it, it's all the times, 24-7, your heart just increases in size and then it comes to just a point where it just goes, you know what, I can't deal with this. And and it decompensates and that's where you go into a heart. That it's, it's basically your heart noping out. Yep. So it deals with it until it doesn't. That's like all of us, really. Mm, yeah. It's a nice description of what everybody's going through, hey. <laughs> <laughs> it it's fascinating though, really. And I feel like that's a really good example of like just cuz you have an outcome that may visibly look good. I'm using good in inverted commas. Yeah. In this case like a good big healthy heart. Yay. The process for getting there is actually really important and you kind of I know what I'm trying to say. I don't know if it makes sense. Yeah, but, but can't it's, cheat. it's how it looks, right? But the, the cool thing about what it, the difference is as well, and that's what my, my boss did even before I came around, was that, is that, you know, she identified that in response to exercise, all these like sort of signaling pathways, whether or not it's genes or protein signaling cascades, they're so different that all these things so different they get activated in res- as compared to say if it was a chronic 
pathological stress. But yet you come to a, you know, by the midpoint, somewhat similar outcome. It's it's after then you kind of go, okay, that's a huge difference. Because with exercise, say, if we're talking about an elite athlete, for example, they, they would have a larger heart, right? But if they retire, that heart just kind of shrinks. It just goes back to normal size because you don't have to deal with so much stress anymore. Whereas, say, if you've got a heart problem, that doesn't occur. You, you still go into heart failure. Yeah, you kind of can't. You're not stepping backwards from it. Mm-hmm. Thing. It's fascinating. Super and it's, cool. It, it also really shows the importance of looking at like the underlying stuff, like the lipids. It's not just, oh, we can see it. And you can see how people back in the day when they were just like, you know, pulling out hearts and looking at them and weighing them or something, they could have come up with some really inaccurate assumptions. <laughs> yeah, the importance of looking behind the veil, I think. Is there anything about your work that you're particularly excited about at the moment? At the moment, I guess it's it's a funny sort of time because I am trying to write or assist with you know manuscript writing, but I'm also trying to set up new study that that is slightly different in terms of scope in my new position. And I think those two like kind of nicely encapsulates what I just love I love about the job because writing manuscripts means you have to think about your results and what and how your results fit in the context of number one your study but number two in the context of the larger body of work that's out there right and 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 number two coming to trying to conceptualize new studies that's that's the cool part because you know the world's your oyster really like whatever you think about you can try to do obviously i think within reason and i think you need to sort of curate that a little bit in your discussions with you know other scientists and 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 they you know sometimes might slap you down and go well that's a stupid idea but you know you take it in your stride and you go like okay maybe what's a stupid idea but hey you know the other was pretty fun you know get back up and and then you you try to like think about cool ideas again and and i think that's the coolest bit because you you think of a cool idea and you could think about it in the shower you think about it when you're on your run you could like wake up in the middle of the night and go like oh my god like i didn't think of that maybe i should do that and then and then you I don't know, potentially six months down the line could be doing that project. It's awesome, yeah. That sounds like the science dream. Yeah, yeah, literally, right? (laughs) Literally and metaphorically. Yeah, I I think those are the things that kind of, yeah, get me going. Not even like now, like, I think it just gets me going. And that's what I love about this position. It sounds like you actually have scope to be a bit creative. Yeah, it, it's weird, right? You know, you, you think as a scientist that you're all about like logic, you know, and 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 you never think like, or at least I never thought until more recently that you know what, actually, it's not. It, 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 creative is the word, 
and and it's sometimes how you can think outside of the box to try to address certain questions that could be like so cool as well that's art to science there is there is and that needs to be celebrated more i reckon yeah that that could that maybe that could be a quote for the title of this podcast that's art to science Something you mentioned earlier that I forgot to sort of pick up on is, so you're, are you doing research with people? As in, am I doing it on people or alongside people? Oh, no, no, no. I know you're not alone in a lab. (laughs) 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 Yeah, we'll just like stoke the lone genius myth. No, no, no. I meant on people. At the moment, no, but we do have aspects in my current lab, even where we are trying to branch out into human research so we were fortunate enough to get two nhf so national heart foundation grants this year and last year to collect plasma i think from some blood from i think it was people with heart failure with the the understanding of trying to do lipidomic profiling on the plasma from these people or these patients but also to do further analysis on their on their blood to try to figure out, okay, you know, just by looking at their blood, knowing their condition, are there biomarkers that we could try to maybe tease out based on the lipids that could tell us something in terms of maybe making a diagnosis? Because then it will be less invasive in a sense. You know, maybe we don't have to do an angiogram, for example. We could just take a blood and maybe run it through and then try to see whether or not you have these markers. And that's like a nice, I feel like it's a nice sort of stretch out into what we currently do because we have already seen, at least in my research, that, you know, there are these potential markers that come up when we look blood in mice with heart failure. But but obviously mice, that's a model that you study. And so it's always good to be able to sort of extend that out and stretch that out into seeing if that translates into to the patient population as well. Yeah. No, I, I do have some differences to a mouse. Yes, people do. <laughs> Just a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I am really curious, what does an average day at work look like for you? So I think if a normal person were to hear this, they would think, man, a scientist does not sound as exciting as what television looks like. (laughs) Because at the moment, particularly this year, I guess, my average day of work really looks like emails, meetings, Earlier in the year, student supervision, so talking to my student, guiding my student in terms of her experiments for the day, writing manuscripts, and planning for studies. And that's kind of that's kind of my day. So a lot of it, particularly again this year, is spent really almost like a desk job in front of the computer. All the people expecting the white lab coat and the shiny... Yeah laboratory with the glass and the whiteboards or something they're all a bit disappointed in you right now you know I think I, th- I think uh, well so I, I still do that this year but it, it's becoming increasingly less and it, it's funny because I think it, is, it was this year as well that I, I sort of realized that 
but I also realize I've accepted that transition because if you would have asked me, say, three years ago, w- would I be happy with that? I would have said no because I think I got. I, I would have said I got into science because I enjoy a non-traditional job where I'm not at the desk. I'm not doing desk work. You know, I'm in the lab. I'm doing experiments. You know, it's fun. It's physical. You know, you're moving around, running around. You're doing different things. But at at this point, and I think that's where a light bulb moment came where I was like, so this is why lab heads do this. I, I just have so much to do. And, and all I want is to understand my results. I want to understand my results because number one, that allows me to understand how to fit this other jigsaw piece or this puzzle piece into my larger jigsaw puzzle. But number two, then I get to go, all right, what does this mean? And what kind of new study can I think about? And so I don't have time to like do the experiments. I just want people to do the experiments for me. And then I realized, wait, in order to get people to do experiments for me, I need money. So to get money, I need to write more grants. And I was like, oh, right. This is why it happens. (laughs) The whole system now makes sense. Now you're on the other side. (laughs) But it's almost like looking back, reflecting and going like, so this is growth because you know i i kind of am okay leaving like the 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 lab work you know because i I just want to i want the results you know i want to think about the results i want to understand the results and yeah i think again if you would have asked me that three four years ago i don't think i would have wanted to spend that much time just looking at results because i'll just look at it and go so it's with that like extra layer of understanding that you've built up that yeah now now there's more value in those results to you yeah i think it's 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 a bit of everything right so it's it's being in the field for longer so you know you 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 know the field more you you, you've taken even like bits and pieces and you know just a little bit of everything everywhere and you know so when you think about the context of your results sometimes even if it's maybe not super positive results right you're not seeing like major changes that you expect you don't just go as i would have during my phd for example oh no like this is depressing and i kind of just throw it away and go i don't know what's happening here you kind of go okay this is what the result looks like but are there things that i can tease out you know because something has to change and something is changing. And if it is changing, what do all these things mean? And it's easier for me to put these changes into context because of the length of time that I've been in the field for. So I understand what minor, smaller minor changes, for example, in this case to lipids could potentially mean, but also being in the field for longer, I know, oh yeah, I remember like this study, they like mentioned this and they saw this and I kind of see that here. So maybe that's a path that I can follow. And that allows me to, to dig a little bit more. Moved away from where there's like one path to a successful experiment or something. Well, I think that's the thing, right? I think with time as well, I think as a PhD student, a positive experiment is the experiment that you expect 
the results. It's with the experiment, with the results you expect. And that's positive. But I think, I think over time you realize that very rarely in science do you get a 100% positive result. Because if you do, everybody will be a Nobel Prize winner. And, and it's understanding that, you know what, there's something cool in trying hard, trying to have to work harder to dig under the surface to try to understand what's going on. Because that's when it's like what you say, right? It's, it's being a detective. You kind of have to pull at the thread a little bit harder, a little bit like more carefully and go, all right, where are you leading me? And then you have to take joy in that challenge as well. I think that's the part where the joy comes from. It, it's, it's, it's in the, it, literally it's the investigating, right? It's, it's the, the trying to understand how, why. Yeah. Why are the lipids doing this? Yeah. What was your pathway to get to where you are now? Like, what was your plan, say, in high school? What did you want to do versus how, how things have ended up going? So this could be a very boring conversation, right? Because in high school, I knew I wanted to be in research already. But it was for a very weird, superficial reason. And I probably haven't said this actually to many people or to any, but... I wanted to be a scientist in high school because I was convinced that I could, I, I, I was convinced that science had an answer to death and that I could solve aging. And, and that's why I wanted to be in research. I, that, that was the main sort of reason. And, and also because I loved science. And so that was my main pathway, I think. I was, I was fixated, I think, even from high school, that I was like, yeah, research is the thing for me. And then going to labs in high school and, and really enjoying it, that was that was also the other sort of kind of light bulb moment for me. And, and during my time when I was in high school as well, biotechnology was really coming up as a field. And so I had a lot of encouragement from my dad as well at the time where he was like, yeah, you know, you're going to make tons of money. Very typical Asian sort of family background thinking. So you'll be great. You know, just make tons of money, go into biotechnology. That's where all the money's at. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's what I'll do too. And, and so that was kind of my trajectory always, even from high school going into, into university. And I think, I think it was really at my honest year where things could probably have had unraveled a little bit. I did my honest year and, and it wasn't as, as how I had thought it would have been. It, it, was, it was a tough year. Some of it was my fault but I didn't get a lot of guidance in it. And so I didn't really get like the result that I wanted to. And so when it, come, it, when it came time to apply for a PhD, which was exactly what I wanted, you know, I, I was full on after honors going to go straight into a PhD. I wanted to do a PhD because that's how you become a scientist. I was told, yeah, you're probably not going to 
qualify for a PhD. And I was like, oh, my life is over. That was literally what I said to one of the PhD students in there. My life is over. What am I going to do? And she was like, well, it's not over. You just got to try to find a job as a research assistant and work your way and get a couple of papers under your belt, get some research experience under your belt, and then try to apply again. And people get to do PhDs that way. And I tried. It was when the global financial crisis hit as well. So I think that was 20, no, 2009, 2010. And I applied for a position that was looking for a research assistant. Thought I did the interview pretty well. And then I think a couple of days later was told very nicely that I did not make the position, but then received an email just very shortly after from this lab head who said, you know, you didn't have the requisite skills that we were kind of looking for, but I appreciate that you need to learn skills to be able to show that you have the skills for future job applications. So if you would like, why don't you come and volunteer in my lab? Um, and that was 12 years ago for this lab head, Julie McMullen. And do you got your papers? Yeah, so I I worked, sorry, so I I worked for four years under her. So I volunteered for almost half a year, I think, under her, and then I worked part time, and then the following year she employed me as a research assistant full time, and that went on for four years, and then I started my PhD with her, and I think that came to an end close to four years. I think it was three years and 10 months and then and then continued as a, a postdoc or po- postdoctorate position with her and next year would be or would have been five years so i'm nearing close to five years with her as a postdoc that's a fantastic story yeah i i think Whoever the PhD student was who gave you the advice to when you said your life is over, that was that was quite solid advice you got given. It's, I think the more solid advice would have been actually I did get that advice as well was don't do a PhD, but and I was told by multiple people not to do one. But I think you know what that's that's the mark that you 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 you're made to do the PhD if if you get. Advice from multiple sources not to do it, and you go headlong, and you go, no, nah, I'm going to do it. Nah, it's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, then you've probably got the ability to stick through the yeah. rather challenging <laughs> times. <laughs> so just, just to bring up your, you know, youthful, hopeful thoughts, but the, the cheating death sort of concept, it... I assume you've learned stuff now that obviously we're not going to solve death with science. Theoretically speaking, you could solve death if you just made sure your telomeres didn't shorten. That could be an avenue potentially. I'm sure that's I'm sure aging researchers will be calling me out. Please don't add me on Twitter. You yeah, if you because one of the key things that I think people know about aging and and you know eventually death or or senes, cell senescence, I think if they call it 
is that your telomeres will shorten to a point where it can't, and that's where your cell stops and it dies. That's very much, I believe, oversimplifying it again. But say if you stopped it from shortening, if you stopped your DNA from collecting mutations across your life, that could maybe make some way to cheating death, potentially. I'm sure there's more to it. I, I have my suspicions that there's a reason it hasn't been done yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, in all honesty, I actually quite like that as a motivation for a young person to go into science. Like, it's a bit shallow, kind of, but it's also, you know, it's a very real human thing that has driven people for centuries to do all sorts of stuff. So like, it's quite a powerful driver and clearly worked to some extent. I mean, it's nice. Yeah, it's nice that you put it in that context because the way I, I see it now was, man, how foolish was that? But I think I like your way better. Youthful ignorance, I think. I love it. It's a very, It's an interesting driver, though. Were there any particular, actually, I I know, I might ask you a harder question. That moment of feeling like you'd failed at the end of honours, obviously horrible, but do you feel like that was also an important moment in your journey? Yes. And I think many moments, if I had looked back now, together with that moment, I would not have had it any other way. Because I know now if, for example, I got the results that I wanted and I continue in my, into my PhD, I would have stayed in that lab as well. And that wouldn't have been something that I think I would have ultimately wanted to do. But as a, as a kid, then I think I didn't take the time to explore my options as best as I could have. And... And I would have just rolled with what I had in front of me. And I think, I think having to go through that, having had to try to find work, which was particularly hard because I was, I was here in Australia on the student visa. And so it was tough because I, I thought, okay, now I'm going to take, it's a ticking time bomb. Because if I don't find work within six months, I'm gone. Like, I can't stay in Australia. And, and it was a huge thing that was hanging over my head. And I did everything that I could. You know, like, I worked I worked in a bagel shop. I, I worked in a restaurant all the while as I washed dishes thinking, okay, I, I, I went through my Bachelor of Science, did my honors for this. I, yeah, it... They were all character-building moments, I think, all these things that are along the way that I think all contributes to who I am as a person now. And I wouldn't have had it any other way. Yeah. As hard as it can be at the time, it is nice to be able to look back on it and be like, oh, no, that was actually pivotal for shaping me and making me more resilient now, etc. Yeah. Is there yeah. any advice you'd give to ya- young Yaukit? Oh, any advice I would give to young Yaukit? I think, I I think this applies to even now, but 
maybe just pause to enjoy things a little bit. So that, yeah, enjoy things a little bit more, enjoy your wins, and pause to savor them because I think too easily, this doesn't just apply to me. I think too easily do we all have a win or have an achievement, but just move on and go, all right, what's the next thing? Because I need to keep moving. And I think, I think, yeah, I think, you know, I'm not sure about other fields, but like within academia, sometimes wins are so hard to come by that I think just taking a moment to enjoy them just makes it nice, I think. I think we can actually be very dismissive of our own wins. Um, <laughs> yes. And yes. That's, it's not good for us at all. It's not, but you know what? I think sometimes it's a double-edged sword. I, 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 th- I came to realize that a lot of times what, I, what we perceive as wins, for me, I would perceive as that was something that I always needed to achieve anyway. And so once I achieved it, I go, okay, that was expected, what's next? And, and obviously that's a huge driver, right? In, in trying to achieve things, but also I think at some point you burn out. That's definitely not setting yourself up for success, like no. long-term. Yeah. At the same time, it's so easy to say, oh, we should celebrate our wins and to give each other like that advice and then not do anything about it. Oh yeah, that's why, that's why I said it's still something I need to tell myself <laughs> now. <laughs> And I'm going to go out on a limb and say to all the listeners, you probably also need to hear this advice as well. (laughs) Just a guess. (laughs) Well, we'll try and take that on. I have recently discovered that our local lolly shop does like cookies that you can have personalized for any event, including like, you know, lots of podcast episodes released or anything. If you can eat cookies, I recommend that as a way of celebrating because it's very fun and edible. Yes, I can eat cookies and I love cookies. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's somewhere locally that will help you make celebration cookies. Are there any myths or misconceptions that you come across when when you're talking to people about your research where people, you know, tend to have these myths in their heads? I'm, I'm not sure if they're myths, but... I think I think maybe sometimes people don't don't know it enough, and this this might be more so maybe the the quote let's say quote unquote older generation that meaning say when I, I speak to my parents about my work, but things move almost glacially if you look at the context of things in in research sometimes, you know the research is slow and say if you if you find that there was this xyz sort of drug that came out that that drug probably has had been in the making for the last maybe 15 years i think sometimes people don't have that context there and 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 also i think the result of that drug being in the market was probably also a result of maybe 250 iterations of that drug having failed. But nobody knows that either. Um, and so things move slowly. Failure rate is really high in science. But that incremental sort of knowledge gain 
that slow moving sort of process and that failure is is necessary i think in research it is necessary in the sense i think that it doesn't give a reason to say oh then why bother funding research well yeah i mean we still need to know what doesn't work yeah, oh, yeah. but i think a lot of times then people go you know oh there's so much failure you know so so why, 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 why bother wasting so much money into research, blah, 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 that, that sort of thing. Oh, it takes too long. And you know what? Maybe that that's more applicable. <laughs> oh, I don't know who's listening to this podcast, but like maybe it's more applicable to the politicians. Maybe I'll just leave it there. <laughs> we'll drop just a nice little spicy bomb there, you know? Maybe should people, if people are paid on their successes. Oh, that's hilarious. But to, to go back, is there sort of sometimes this feeling that it's come out of nowhere and boom, like they haven't been properly tested or something? I, I think there's definitely a subset of the population that I have seen think that, particularly with the pandemic sort of raging and a lot of COVID deniers popping out of nowhere. But I think the general public... No, yeah, I don't think the general public thinks that. I don't think that they think that the the drugs, for example, or the medicine is is unproven or it's not tested enough. I think sometimes it's it's more so they didn't realize, for example, how long it's taken for that drug to, you know, come come online and how much studies have been done to to really ratify it and understand it, you know, and how much work has gone behind it. And I think maybe that's you know what? Actually, there's a term for it. And I heard this over another podcast. I can't remember which one it was, but it's called the CSI effect. And yeah. that's because CSI, as great as a television show it was, who could forget your, with a weird pun, they kind of show, you know, you running your experiments in some weird sort of neon colored room with a dingy lab coat and you get your result like bang in like five minutes which it's not really the case but that's kind of the understanding right that's what's in pop culture yeah i i think that the issues with pop culture do arise periodically with science and tech and a whole lot of different careers really my understanding is that no profession is actually accurately pr- represented <laughs> <laughs> on television i'm so yep that that's a challenge for listeners work out a, a profession that's accurately represented because pop it in the comments yeah pop it in the comment if you can find a comment <laughs> section yeah we've covered quite a bit but is there anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to share not really uh, except i think i i did touch on it before but as i said i think this is more to maybe if there's any PhD students sort of out there, the results are still results. And I say that because I think I had a couple of conversations with some people who, who get who who get very dejected by it. And and I understand totally because I, I got dejected by it as well. But you know, it's negative results might not be what you want, but they are still results. They are still publishable. And again, it just means that they're cooler stuff that's hidden underneath for you to discover. You just got to take the time to, to, to look for it. So don't be disheartened, I think. Because I think I, 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 I definitely would have wished that somebody told me that when I got dejected or at least phrased it in that way. 
I, I think the important thing is you're phrasing it as like, yes, it's a frustration and I'm going to go further and say you're allowed to be annoyed course, and you're allowed yeah. to have that moment of like, grr, it's all rubbish. But then come back to it. Don't actually throw it in the bin. And you, you're then phrasing it as an opportunity. I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. As long as you don't actually throw it out, it's not lost. I mean, you can try to throw something else, like maybe throw a ball against a wall or something to get some of that anger out and then give it like 15 minutes and half an hour, go get a coffee and come back and try to digest the results again, right? And that, that's not just for science. That's for, yeah. you know, that, you know, something goes wrong when you're baking cookies or something or, you know, if you're writing code, like all these things, are, you know, a failure is not the same as a loss. Cooler heads will prevail. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't try and do it straight away. <laughs> <laughs> and... So to wrap up, have you got a shout out for us, a virtual high five for someone or someone who you think is just doing an awesome job and deserves lots of high fives? I think that's not one person, but I think in the context of everything that's been going on, I think I like to give a virtual high five to my support network. So be that my peers at work, friends, mentors, mentors specifically, I think these are people that I think I feel comfortable in confiding in and they probably know who they are so they don't need to be shouted out specifically, I think. But they all do doing an awesome job. Both, I think, like, you know, in, in selfishly in the regard of supporting me, quote unquote, but also I think in their own individual sort of spaces because I know we had this sort of conversation maybe before we began, but, you know, things are hard. You know, people, it's the end of the year, people are stressed out. So everybody's kind of going through like a tough, tough sort of period. So they have their own sort of things to deal with, but yet they find time to, to provide support. So I think that does definitely deserves a high five. Massive high fives. So high fives to everyone who is supporting Yaki, obviously. Yeah. And just... People who are supporting other people right now because, you know, it is it is a bit tough and a lot of people are sort of limping towards the end of the year at the moment. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Yaki. This has been absolutely delightful, full of wonderful bits of wisdom and hopefully everyone's feeling a little bit more sunshiny. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me on, Amelia. This I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee. Head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link. Buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend. <laughs>